Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met yet, my name is John Boyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. Most Sundays, my wife and our three kids and I are worshiping on the Boulder campus, but I am thrilled to be here with you this morning at the Erie campus. As you know, this Sunday is our men's advance, and Pastor Thomas and Pastor Tom are up with about 150 other guys uh, leading that weekend. And so I'm so excited to be here with you this morning to open our Bibles together. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts because we want to understand what the church is. We want to know how this organization that began 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. You know what they would have thought the ends of the earth were? 2,000 years ago, I mean, they didn't even know we would exist, right? Erie, Colorado was the ends of the earth. And the church, over 2,000 years, has spread all across the globe. I'm so thankful that it spread all the way here to Boulder and Erie, Colorado, because it was 20 years ago when I took my first step into the Boulder campus of Calvary Bible Church. I was an 18-year-old freshman at the University of Colorado, Hang on, whenever I say the University of Colorado at the Boulder campus, like we have a bunch of college students there and there's a little like sco buffs or cheer or something. So can we try that again? I was an 18 year old freshman at the University of Colorado. Nice, that's so much better. I was with a pastor friend of mine last week. He was visiting Boulder, uh, visiting a friend and we were having lunch and he was telling me that his daughter's getting to the age where she's starting to look at colleges. And she's, he said that she's interested in going to the University of Colorado. I said, oh, that's awesome. It's the number one university in the nation. <laughs> he goes, really? Who ranked them number one? I said, I did. I mean, I don't know why, you know, U.S. News and World Report, whatever gets to rank the best universities in the country... Of all the universities that I've attended across the nation, the University of Colorado is number one. But 20 years ago, I was a freshman, 18 years old. I I thought I had a lot of stuff figured out. I really thought I knew who Jesus was. I was kind of casually familiar with the Bible. I had no idea that taking those steps into Calvary Bible Church 20 years ago would completely change the trajectory of my life. Because of the faithful teaching and preaching of the words of Jesus every week, I started to understand who Jesus was and what he had done and what he was calling me to do in my life. I met my wife, Lindsay, at Calvary. We got married at the Boulder campus. We dedicated our three kids at the Boulder campus. Like so many great things have happened for me because this church has existed. And it's been my joy to be on staff here at Calvary for 16 years and getting to watch God work over that season. I remember when we first started dreaming about the Erie campus and praying about what it might look like. And I remember so many of you who were committed to say, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna leave what's comfortable for me I'm going to leave it behind and I'm going to go because I believe there is a town out in eastern Boulder County and Weld County that needs to know the love of Jesus. 
And we all remember praying like, where are we going to meet? What are we going to do? And there was this beautiful high school that had just opened and it was like God had provided it for us and it was perfect. I remember being out there and setting up week after week so that we could have church in the school and praying about, God, we think you're leading us to have a permanent location. Where would that be? And searching and searching for land. And finally, it was as if God gave us this piece of property and we rejoiced. And then we began praying, okay, God, it's going to be a big deal for us to build a building. We, we need to be generous. We need your help. How are, you, how are we going to do that? What's that going to look like? And God was overwhelmingly generous through his people to build this building. And then being able to watch this campus just grow and flourish. And now to be at a season in the history of our church where we're saying, okay, we're going to step out in faith again and launch a third campus. And God has literally gifted us a building. It's amazing. It's because God builds his church. It's his work. It's been such a privilege of mine to be a part of it and to be able to witness what God's doing. But building the church isn't always joyous and celebrations. There's challenges too, and we face them. You know, when you're in a community of people, you lose people that you love. Situations occur in the life of the church. There's internal problems that come up. We saw last week in our study in the book of Acts, there was kind of an internal problem in the early church, right, around hypocrisy. God took care of that in kind of an intimidating way. So there's internal problems that we face, and there's external problems, too, that, that organizations and the church faces. I mean, look at what's happened in the history. Like, we're, we're going to trace it today. There's, there's growing persecution and external challenges that the early church is facing in their community. They're trying to stop the spread of the gospel. It happened in the early Roman Empire. They tried to put Christians to death so they could stop this thing from continuing. We see it today in our world, in places like China. And what happens? God builds his church, right? Even when powerful people or societal structures work against the spread of the gospel, God does his work. But there are challenges, external ones, crises that can be faced. I mean, look at what's happening in our world. It's an election year. Can you imagine what it's going to be like the closer we get to November? Like how much more divisive is our country going to be and what's it going to be like to be the church? There's this virus that's happening and people are afraid and we don't know what's going to happen. All these things can happen outside. And, and what happens when there's crises? That's what I want to show you today in our text. So if you have a Bible, grab it and turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We're going to look at two groups of people who face a crisis. A crisis that is external to them. It's not an internal problem, it's something outside of them. And it's a remarkable contrast, the way that these two groups respond to what's happening. They each take a different perspective, they each have a different response. So you're turning to Acts chapter 5. If you're new to studying the Bible, or if you don't have one, there's a Bible that's in front of you, we'd love for you to take that. If you don't own one, it's our gift to you. But Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. Your Bible's basically divided into two sections, Old Testament, New Testament. And the New Testament begins with the four Gospels, which are the historical account of the birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And right after the Gospel of John comes the book of Acts, which traces the history of the beginning of the church. And we're going to be looking and starting at Acts uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Before we jump in, though, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can gather together in the name of Jesus to hear from him and to study your word, God. We pray you would be our teacher. We pray you would, he- you would speak to us and we would hear from you the very words of God. Father, we thank you for our church. We pray for the men who are at the advance, for their safety, for them to be drawn close to you. We pray for us too, God, as we're here and gathered, that you would unite us. That we would hear from the Holy Spirit, that he would speak to us, and that we would become more and more like your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we have a lot of ground to cover today. We're starting in verse 17, and we're going all the way to the end of chapter 5, which is about 25 verses. So instead of reading all of it together, you can do that later, let's just summarize a, key, a few key situations that happen in our text, and then we're going to come back and look more closely at it. But as I said, there are two groups that are responding to a crisis today. Let's meet them. They're in verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him. That is the party of the Sadducees. This is our first group. If you're familiar with the Bible, you've, you've probably heard of these people before, the Sadducees. They were a part of the religious elite, the leaders in first century Judaism. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're going to come on the scene a little bit later in our text. And these two groups come together to form what our text refers to as the council or the Sanhedrin. They make decisions and rule over uh, the Jews in the first century. Now, the Sadducees and the Pharisees weren't exactly friendly with each other. They had some very significant theological disagreements. It's not an exact parallel, but if we think about today, we think about Democrats and Republicans. Don't exactly agree, right? But they have to work together. And they have to come together. And occasionally, it's kind of stunning, they actually agree about things. This past week, there was some bipartisan legislation that was passed about the coronavirus. There were only like two people who voted against it. So basically, by and large, all Democrats, all Republicans said, yes, we agree, coronavirus is bad, we should have this legislation to help fight it, so we're all going to vote together. It's like a miracle. When does that happen? It's kind of like the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So the Pharisees and the Sadducees can't agree about much, but they can agree about this. That this early organization we now call the church is a problem, and they have to stop it. So throughout our text today, we're going to see how they try and make decisions, how they respond to this crisis, because that's what it is for them. These people are causing problems, and they need to solve it. That's our first group. goes on to say that they were filled with jealousy, and so they arrested the apostles, and they put them in public prison. That's our second group, the apostles. These early church leaders who Jesus has commissioned to spread his message of salvation around the world, and it's beginning right here in Jerusalem. And this is the second time now that the apostles have been put in prison. And it all goes back to this situation that happened a couple chapters ago where there there was this man who was on the steps leading up to the temple 
who our text said was lame from birth. He had a physical disability. And the apostles, Peter specifically, miraculously healed this man. And it caused quite a commotion in Jerusalem. And they told him, after they were preaching and teaching and claiming that the reason why this man had been healed was because of the power of the name of Jesus, they're telling him to stop and they've thrown him in prison and this is now the second time because they, they just won't stop. Verse 19. But during the night, I love this, during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. This is like the most incredible prison break in history. You read about these people who break out of prison, you know, they like find a, a spoon from, you know, the cafeteria in jail and they dig out, you know, tablespoon by tablespoon the dirt for miles until they can make a, a tunnel and escape and it takes them years and there's a conspiracy and all these people are in on it. That's not what happened here. This angel just shows up and busts them out of prison. And then the angel says to them, Go. And stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when the apostles heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So they've disobeyed the orders of the religious leaders. How do you think that's going to go for them? Not very good. So some people discover the apostles, you know, because they think they're still in prison, right? But they discover that the apostles are preaching in the temple. They call them back in front of the council. Now, when the council would gather, there were lots of people. There were probably about 100 people made up the Sanhedrin with the Sadducees and the Pharisees together. But there were also their followers who came with them. So they're probably standing, the apostles are, in front of a group of people that's maybe about this size. But they're probably a little less friendly than I'm hoping you are because they're questioning them. They're accusing them. They're telling them to stop, and they hold significant amounts of power in their hand. And as they question them, they have a little back and forth, and a conflict arises between them. Once again, the ruling leaders tell them, you've got to stop doing this. And the apostles say in verse 29, which I think is just a key verse for this text, they said, we must obey God rather than men. That's their answer to the council when they tell them to stop it. We must obey God rather than men. So I want you to think about that heading over the apostles. Their response to a crisis essentially is obedience to God. That's how they respond. They see this problem. They're being persecuted. They're being imprisoned. We're going to see that they're going to suffer significantly at the hands of the religious leaders. But their response is obedience to God. What about the Pharisees and the Sadducees? What about the council? Well, after this, they're, they're furious at the apostles. The apostles go through and kind of preach to them briefly and share the message of this life that the angel told them to speak. The text says that the ruling council was enraged at them and they wanted to kill them. But a man who was a Pharisee stands up in front of the council. His name's Gamaliel. And he says, let's, let's send them outside. And they have a little secret meeting amongst the council. And Gamaliel says to them, Let, let's just remember. Let's remember what's happened with some of these uprisings that have happened in the past. You remember this guy named Thutis? Thutis rose up. He had some followers. He was killed and his followers scattered. Then what about Judas the Galilean? He rose up too and he, 
He was kind of an insurrectionist. There was a group of people who followed him, but he was killed. And his followers scattered. And it's almost like, let's just remember, we killed their leader. That should put a stop to this. His followers probably will scatter too. It's kind of an amazing thing when you think about that one of the most important marks of the Christian faith is that our leader died. That's what we gather to remember. That's sort of the one thing he told us, do this in remembrance of me. Remember not my birth, not even my resurrection, remember my death. What happens to most movements when their leader dies early in the history of the movement? Fades away, right? Like anybody ever heard of Thutis? Anybody know the name Judas the Galilean? I have never seen a bumper sticker that says Thutis is my homeboy. Like anybody ever seen the bracelet that says what would Judas the Galilean do? No. But Jesus, they killed him. And we still gather 2,000 years later. That's amazing. Now, Gamaliel also says, you know what could happen, actually? Is that we might be found, he says in verse 39, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Clearly those with Thutis and Judas the Galilean were not of God and they failed. But if... If this movement is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So that's sort of the heading I want us to have in our minds as we look through how the high priests and the council respond to this threat. They're found to be in opposition to God. I think we can say 2,000 years later that it probably wasn't a good idea to try and snuff out the beginning of the church. It's an incredible contrast to look at the defining characteristics of people whose lives are marked by opposition to God versus those whose lives are marked by obedience to him. So let's begin by looking at those who are opposing God. That way we can end on a good note. Okay, those who are opposed to God. Back to verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles, and they put them in public prison. Here's the first mark I want you to see of people who are opposed to God. They were filled with jealousy. They're jealous. They're jealous of the work that the apostles are doing. And because they're filled with jealousy, they're reacting the way that they are. Now, why would these people, these people who are so powerful, who control so much in first century Judaism, why would they be jealous of this group of uneducated common men? I mean, these leaders are educated, they have titles, they're wealthy, they have power. What is it about the apostles that would make them jealous? If you look at the paragraph that's right above verse 17 verses 12 through 16 it talks about what the apostles are doing and what's happening it says many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles they were doing miraculous things they were healing people 
And so the people were naturally drawn to these new gifts and abilities that they had. It's common for us to be jealous of people who have new gifts and abilities. They're really good at speaking. They dress a certain way. They look a certain way, and we start to get jealous of them. It even says in verse 13 that the people held them, held the apostles in high esteem. The religious leaders saw their their hold on the power over the people sort of being transferred from them to the apostles. The apostles were held in high esteem. There was like a new game in town. It's like when the new kid joins your class in the middle of the school year, you know? Everybody wants to get to know them. Oh, where are you from? I'm from Aurora. Ooh, that sounds exotic. Do you want to eat lunch at my table today? My son Cooper's in third grade. A couple years ago, he had a new student join his class, and she was from London. I mean, come on. That's not fair. Like, not only are you the new kid in the middle of the year, so everybody's interested in you, but you, your accent is so much cooler than everybody. Like, the cool kids didn't have a chance. And the cool kids always get intimidated when there's a new kid on the block, right? Because they're the ones who are used to having the esteem. And suddenly, these guys do. And they're filled with jealousy. I think part of the problem for the ruling council is that they desperately want people to like them. I mean, look at how they react to this problem in verse 26. They send out a little delegation to go grab the apostles and bring them back. And so the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So if the first characteristic of people who are opposed to God is that they're jealous, the second is that they're fearful. And particularly afraid of the opinions of people. Any people pleasers in the room? Yeah, some of you, most of you aren't raising your hands because you're worried about what the person sitting next to you will think. <laughs> Man, when we make decisions based on what other people think about us, we make really, really bad decisions. And there's so many people that we try and please, right? We try and please our boss. We want our spouse to be happy with us, our neighbors, our friends, kids at school, our congregation. It's exhausting because you're trying to earn their approval and people are fickle. You know, these people who probably had held the council in esteem, now, now they like the new guys. My friends, do you know what is so much better than being liked by people? Being loved by God. When our identity is rooted in what God thinks about us, rather than what other people do, That is the only way that our souls can be satisfied. That's the only way that we can truly experience love. Because he won't leave us. He won't find a new kid in town that he thinks is more interesting. He won't get annoyed with us. He won't hold other people in higher esteem. And the amazing thing about God and his love for each of us He knows everything about us, and he loves us anyway. 
And people whose identity is shaped around the love of God for them make decisions that are altogether different than those who try and live a life to please other people. So they're afraid. And when we're afraid, we're make, we make really bad decisions. I mean, look what these guys tried to do in verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. So they're jealous, they're fearful, and they're controlling. They're trying to put a stop to this new movement. They're trying to manipulate the outcome of the sovereign will of God. How's that going to turn out for them? Not very well. You know, control is often our response to fear. Fear makes us feel out of control, and so we try and control what we can. Other people, situations. We obsessively organize our house because that's the only thing we can keep control over. I think controlling behavior is just a response to fear. Before we move on from this, I, I want you to see what they say about what the apostles are doing. So we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That's amazing. The whole city was buzzing about what was happening with the apostles and this message of life the angel had told them to preach. Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like if we filled Erie, Colorado with the teaching of Jesus? Like the name of Jesus is on the lips of everybody. Whether they agree or disagree about him, they can't stop talking about him because something is happening. That's just testimony to what God is doing. That God is working in the hearts of people to draw them to himself in a supernatural way. Even while these guys are in jail, even while these guys are being told systematically to stop, God is at work. And Jerusalem is filled with their teaching. So the efforts of the council to try and control this situation aren't going very well. It's out of their control. And after they say this, they have an exchange with the apostles. Where the apostles basically say, after they tell them again, you have to stop, the apostles' response is, can't stop, won't stop. Like, we have a calling. God has called us to do something, and we're leaning into it. And so what happens? Verse 33. When they heard this, when the council heard it, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. So they're jealous, they're fearful, they're controlling, and finally, they resort to violence. Now, it starts with anger, but their anger boils over. What does it turn into? Look at the next verse. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They beat them. 
Their anger turns to violence. And so in summary, when we look at a group of people who is in opposition to God, what do we learn about them? We learn that they're jealous. We learn that they're fearful. We learn that they're controlling and that they're violent. Now we can look at that list and say, okay, I'm good. I'm not violent. I mean, maybe I get angry, but I I would never beat someone. Or get jealous? I do. Are you ever afraid about what might happen? Oh man, that happens all the time to me. Ever try and control situations? Ever get angry? Does your anger sometimes turn into violent words or actions? You know, I think this list is kind of a gut check for those of us who follow Jesus. Like when we find ourselves getting jealous or afraid or trying to control or manipulate a situation, when we sense that we're getting angry, we might just need to say, Lord, am I following you right now? Am I following your will? Am I being obedient or, or may I be stepping into opposition to what you're doing? That's why it's so important for us to be a part of a community where we have people around us who we can go to and say, man, can you help? I'm, I'm feeling afraid. Or people can come to us and say, I think you're trying to control this situation a little bit. Can we talk about that? Now, it's easy to think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and this big divine council and think, oh, these are people who had evil intent. You know, we think of of some of our favorite stories about good versus evil, and we can look at this group of people as like an anonymous group of supervillains. They're like the Death Eaters and the Apostles of Dumbledore's army. They're like Spectre, and the apostles are James Bond and MI6. But you know, in the first century, that's not how people thought of them. They were admired. These people were respected. They were the people you wanted your kids to grow up and be like, the religious leaders of the day. So it might be helpful for us to remember that practicing religion does not prevent us from opposing God's purposes. We can't just say, you know what, I go to church, I volunteer, I read my Bible, I'm in a life group, so therefore, I could never be found opposing God. I mean, these were the leaders of the day. It's about more than just external compliance to a list of rules, right? I mean, look at how the apostles responded to what happened to them. In verse 41, it says, Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What's their response to this beating? Joy. Can you imagine that? Like the physical pain that they must have experienced would have been extraordinary. Most likely this was 39 lashes. 
which meant they would alternate between two lashes on the back and one on the chest 39 times. I can't even imagine how painful that would be. And their response to that experience is joy. Man, there are times when I'm like, oh man, it's hard to be a pastor. I need to take a vacation. These guys are being beaten and they say, this is, this is a joy for us. That's the first mark of people who are obedient to God is that they approach life and its circumstances, whatever it might be, with joy. Now, how could they do that? I think it must have something to do with the reality that they had witnessed this kind of treatment of Jesus. So many of them had watched him be scourged, beaten, hung on the cross, mocked, intimidated, killed. And I think they were so clear in their minds that we want to be more and more like Jesus, whatever that means. So if we want to be like Jesus, and that means that we have to face physical harm, we're in. I mean, I don't want to spoil the end of the book of Acts, but a lot of these guys are going to end up dead, right? They're going to be killed for what they believe. Their life is going to end just like the life of Jesus did. And I think one of the only ways that 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 can happen is that you have witnessed it, right? Doesn't that seem right? I mean, look at how Look at how faithful they are, even in the midst of intimidation. Look at verse 29, the verse we looked at earlier. They said, in the midst of all of this persecution, we must obey God rather than men. That takes great faith. That's the second characteristic. They're joyous and they're faithful. And it must be tied to what they saw in the life of Jesus. What they learned from him after he was raised and he spent 40 days with them teaching They saw something in his life that they said, I need that because that is true life. So they're marked by faith. That's hard though. It's hard to stand up in a group of people who are accusing you and remain faithful. How did they do it? I think when our identity is rooted in God's love for us, it's our joy to obey him. And we want to be faithful because we know what God has done for us, what he has accomplished. And I think it inspires confidence in us. Look at verse 30. They go into this little section where they preach in front of the council. And they say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Whenever they're confronting the religious leaders, they're calling them out. And saying, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Another word for the cross. This was a word that Peter liked to use in 1 Peter chapter 2. He references it in verse 24 when he says that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The death of Jesus accomplished something for us. It put death to sin. And it allows us to experience the righteousness that can only be granted to us 
through Jesus by God the Father himself. They go on back in Acts chapter 5 to say, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. Is that confident witness or what? That's the third mark. They're confident. In the face of of a crisis, in the face of persecution, they just confidently stand and tell the truth. Because, remember, they're witnesses to these things. Now, do you ever feel like, oh man, I'm a little less than the apostles because they actually witnessed these things and I never did? They saw him die. They saw him raised again. They spent time with Jesus. You know what they say, though? We're witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. My friends, if you've obeyed God by repenting, by turning from your life of sin and asking for the forgiveness of our leader and Savior, Jesus, God promises that he will give you the Holy Spirit, who bears witness in your heart and in the hearts of other people about the truth of who God is and what he has accomplished. And so we can be confident, just like the apostles were confident. The amazing thing about the Holy Spirit is is truly how he bears witness in the hearts of other people. I mean, that's how the people held the apostles in high esteem and how multitudes were coming to believe. Because the Holy Spirit was convicting them of sin and drawing them to the Father. And he still does that today. So when we feel like, man... Lord, I just need confidence to share about what Jesus has done. Just be reminded that the Holy Spirit does a work outside of us that is supernatural and can call people to himself. So how did it end up for the apostles? Look at the final verse in our text, verse 42. It says, And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They stuck to the mission. They stuck to what God had called them to. If they were joyous, faithful, confident, I'd say they were also victorious. Because God had given them a calling. And even in the face of trials, they stuck to it. So let's compare these two groups. Those who are in opposition to God and those who are obedient to God. See, my friends, the apostles weren't jealous, they were joyous. They weren't fearful, they were faithful. They weren't controlling, but confident. And they weren't violent, but they were victorious. These are the marks of people who, by faith, follow God in obedience. Now, Please don't write this down and say, okay, now I have my list of things that I have to check off and do this week. I can't be fearful. I have to be faithful. How how did they do this? You know, our verse started by saying that the high priest and the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Do you remember what our text throughout Acts has said that the apostles are filled with? What are they filled with? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells them and enables them to live this way. 
So my friends, as we leave, let's just remember that the increasing presence of the Holy Spirit enables us to obey God. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it without an increased filling of Him. So we have to call on His name and ask for His help. That as we face trials and trouble and stress and pressure, that the Holy Spirit would come and fill our hearts with obedience to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would help us. That for all of us who follow Jesus, that we would experience an increasing presence of your power in our life. As we deal with challenges in our church, as we deal with challenges at work, at home, at school, the Holy Spirit would give us faith and help that you might enable us to turn to God to live our life in obedience to him to ask for his help his guidance his direction we pray for our church God that we would be faithfully obedient to your calling whatever it is Pray that for each of us too, Lord. You would make it abundantly clear in our hearts and in our minds how you've called us to follow you, how to obey you, and that by the power of your Spirit, we would be able to do it. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.